0: Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, best-selling author Cynthia Dapris-Sweeney is in the studio to talk about her best-selling novel, The Nest. Joining me are my co-hosts. She is the former fiction editor of Lark She is now the editor without portfolio or the editor with all portfolios, Lori Weiner. Welcome. Hi, Seth. And the professor, the founding editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. Seth, I'm so happy to be here. You look happy, Lori, does, sound
1: it's does sound. he look happy to you? It looks like he always looks.
0: I think we should do the show. Cynthia Dupree Sweeney started out with the goal of writing her first novel. It escaped the obscure fate of most first novels and became an instant bestseller. It's called The Nest, and she has alighted in our studio to tell us about it. you see what I did with the verb there? I did. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to the show.
1: (laughs) Thanks for having me.
0: Although it's not that kind of nest. It's a different kind of nest. It's It's, all
1: kinds of nests. Like any good title, it's many kinds of...
0: Although it mostly refers to money. Mm-hmm. I was at a dinner party recently where everybody was talking about their ailments. One guy <laughs> had a bad elbow. Another guy had something wrong with his prostate. A third guy had a thing with his neck. Mm-hmm. What a
1: fun dinner party. Everybody,
0: Everybody's very happy to tell you what's wrong with them physically.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No one will discuss money. No, never. Why is that?
2: I'm not sure. I think part of it is, I mean, I was certainly brought up that discussing money was rude. I remember when I first moved to New York City and I was signing a lease for my very first apartment, I needed a guarantor. There were three of us in a one-bedroom apartment on the Upper East Side. My dad said he would be the guarantor, and I had to ask him what his salary was. And that was the most difficult conversation I had had with him up to that time. I was petrified. It just Mm -hmm. wasn't something that you talked about.
1: But it's not an international characteristic right it's American I remember being yeah. in Thailand and having the cab driver say to us how much money do you make like it was nothing you right know? and we were like uh. but it's very American But I, I also think.
2: really remember when all my friends and I from college a bunch of us moved to New York City together and at the beginning everyone was very frank about what their salaries were and what you were making and then all of a sudden people stopped talking about it because you started noticing like oh how can she can afford to go to Cayman Islands now for a week What's it's, I think it's there? when I think it's
3: when you move from the hourly wage, yeah, to the salary,
2: yeah, well, or well, you know people start getting promoted and there's different career paths and
1: yeah. The LA Review of Books is running an interview with you, uh, which mm-hmm. I just edited. It was a very interesting interview. Um, one thing that you said was that one of your writing teachers was working on a story and someone was poor on one page and in mm-hmm. the next page she had a cashmere sweater and your mm-hmm. your teacher said you have to pay attention to these things. They're very, very important. And this book pays such great attention to those kinds of details. And not in a name brand way. You don't name mm-hmm. brands like a lot of writers do. You just the possessions that people have say so much about their class It's a very fascinating aspect of the book, and it reminds me a lot of Tom Wolfe and The Bonfire of the Vanities. Mm -hmm. Was that a novel that was of particular importance to you at all?
2: I think it was because it came out very early in my time in New York, and so I was reading about a New York that I didn't have any access to at that point except maybe the criminal justice system. <laughs>
1: oh, we get to talk about <laughs> but, that. Yeah, no.
2: <laughs> but I, I mean, that's the only one I could easily access. I didn't actually access it. But. Mm-hmm. So that book was really important to me in terms of that was very early on in me understanding wealth and how it functioned in people's lives. I did not grow up with that. I thought trust funds were made up. <laughs> uh, and then I moved to New York and saw that they were real and mm. saw how that sort of inherited wealth really, how it functioned in people's lives and minds. So, There's yeah.
3: also, uh, you know, not just Tom Wolfe. One of the characters mentions Edith Wharton. Mm-hmm. Being, being, mm-hmm. It's like right. an Edith Wharton novel. And I thought that your very first sentence was a Henry James reference. Oh,
2: um, I didn't think about it that way, but I'm glad you did.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, it's partly because the there are two main clauses in the sentence and mm-hmm. there's a lot of parentheticals. Right. And the two main clauses are so far apart right. that you kind of have to go to, back to the top of the sentence, right.
2: which is a
0: very
3: Henry James
2: right. technique. Yes, um, yeah, I, I had to fight a little bit to keep that sentence.
0: I'm glad in. you brought that up, Tom, because when I read the book and I read that first sentence and then I read it again and then I read it again, mm-hmm. And I probably read it five times, picking it apart. And I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting book to read if she's writing in the style of High Henry James. And then you didn't. And I thought, this is a really curious way to begin a novel. I'm One of my obsessions is first sentences mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. novels. Why did you choose to, to do that? I
2: wanted, well, for a long time, that the prologue wasn't that scene. And once I realized that the prologue had to be that scene, you know, the character Leo sort of wandering through the party. I wanted that first paragraph to feel like someone was wandering through a wedding reception, looking for someone and just sort of hearing snatches of conversation and, you know, that moment where you're you're newly arrived at a place and you kind of know people and you kind of don't and you're taking it all in. That's just what I was going for.
1: I also was struck by the first sentence, and I thought that there was a place where there could have been a comma, comma, and there wasn't, which I thought was really interesting. To me, it said, I'm not going to make it easy for the reader necessarily, and you kind of have to pay attention. And then, as I said, in the rest of the prologue, there aren't necessarily any of those long sentences, but it does say something to the reader right away about how to read the book.
3: One of the things that complex sentences do in any literary text is say, hey, slow down
2: hmm Right? Um, and
0: let letting them pay attention. Right. right. And it says that the book is going to be writerly, which it is. It's it's very well written. The book began as a short story, right? Mm-hmm. We well, Talk about that process and at what point you realized there's actually a novel here.
2: Well, it was not a good short story. <laughs> and I was in graduate school. I was at Bennington, and I worked on it a little bit with one teacher, and we both sort of struggled to get our hands around it. And then I started my last term, my thesis term, and I gave it to my thesis advisor, Brett Anthony Johnston. And I remember saying to him, this is, this is a mess. It's 35 pages of a beginning and no middle, and then a, a really bad, quick ending. But I really like it, and I don't know what to do with it. And he called me up and said, uh, I don't think this is a short story. I think this is the start of a novel. And I think you just keep going from here and keep rotating through these people's heads and he also said to me in that phone conversation I don't want to freak you out but if you can keep this up for 300 pages someone will publish this book and that was something that I had to think about a lot in the next couple of years and on bad days remind myself of that.
1: We've talked about the precedent of uh, so many American novels and I, you know, world novels are about class and money. I mean, obviously it's a huge human thing, but I I feel like I noticed something a little bit different in this that was about our generation. I say our, we're, I think, a little bit Mm -hmm. older than you are, but in that you're examining what... A trust fund or what expected future income does to a person's development right. as they're developing in the world and right. your characters. Well, we should tell a little bit about the story. Uh, four siblings. Do you mm-hmm. want to just briefly? Sure. So, it's four
2: siblings. The oldest is Leo, and he has. He is the only one who is... He's slightly estranged from the from the family. And he is the one who's sort of made his way in the world independently and, and has had a business and some money. And then his siblings, Jack, runs an antique shop in the West Village that's heavily mortgaged. His sister, Beatrice, is a writer who is also pretty independent, but she's the one who's the most emotionally connected to Leo. And then the youngest sister, Melody... Lives in the suburbs, she's a very middle income life in a very wealthy area, and she has twin daughters who are about to go off to college, and they all have been expecting to inherit a certain amount of money when Melody turned forty, which is happens during the course of the book. But what also happens during the course of the book is that Leo does something to endanger all that money.
1: Yes, and it's a great premise. It seems to me like they started out okay and that as they aged then their expectation of the money started to screw with them in their lives more and more rather mm-hmm. than that they aged and got more responsible and took care of things that it seemed to like seep in slowly right which i thought was very as interesting. i as i think
2: it did as i think it did in this country f- during those decades for lots of people mm-hmm. that sense of you know the aspirational spending if i have these things if i buy these things if i live in these places i will become these people
1: Right. But the thing that I feel is a slightly different angle than the Tom Wolf is that he, because of the age that we're living in, and uh, he never said, maybe it's not good for anyone to have this kind of um, psychological crutch and didn't even ask that question because we were so used to having trust funds. And then when all the money got sucked out by all the rich people in 2008, right? you know, we're right. looking at it very differently yes. now. right? Yes. And-, and that was a
2: huge... That was a huge motivating factor in writing this book. Uh, we moved here at the end of 2008 while all that was happening. To Los Angeles. To Los Angeles. and But my husband was back in New York. He had to stay working at his job for six months. I came out here so my kids could start school in September. He couldn't come until February. So we had two houses during all of that, and one that we were about to put on the market in New York. And it was scary as it was for everyone, but what I also couldn't help be struck by is the entitlement that was wrapped up in people losing pretend wealth, yeah. you know, like really you thought that you thought that that apartment was going to ridiculously increase in value for the next decade. So it was that sort of, you know, just willfully ignoring the realities of what what was inevitably going to happen and feeling really aggrieved that it happened to them. Absolutely. You know,
3: that Leo reminds me a little bit of, do you watch the Kroll show? The the, the Rich Dicks? I,
2: I've watched <laughs> it. I've watched it on and off. I haven't. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but he's a kind of a classic Rich Dick, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and that makes him both a pathetic character in all sorts of ways, but also mm-hmm. uh, a really fun
2: character. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes.
3: And so we're talking about money and class and, and everything else, but there's a comedy Mm -hmm. that's happening through this. Again, like Edith Wharton, I Mm -hmm.
2: feel, um, Mm -hmm.
3: where there's a level of just comic disbelief at the way characters are acting. Right. That's part of the enjoyment of the text. I,
1: I don't think of Leo like Rich Dix because I think of him as someone with a real charisma, and real talent also. Lori
0: would like to date him.
1: No. <laughs> also, also,
0: to clarify, we should say he's not just a rich dick. He's a rich literary dick. Right. And you write with great insight about the high-end literary world. Right. Where does your uh, research come from? Do you come I out of lived world?
2: In, I li- no, but I was a keen observer of that world. I would have loved to have been part of that world. I, you know, had a different kind of job. I moved to New York and I got a job in marketing and communications, because that's what got me to New York, and I just set off on that path, and, you know, I would occasionally sort of gingerly tiptoe toward the literary world, but I couldn't really figure out how to get in, but I I read everything, I went to readings, I followed that world since I was a teenager, living in Rochester, New York, reading The New Yorker, and reading E.B. White and James Thurber, and you know, all of that stuff. It's just something I've always been really interested in. Now, your husband
0: is a successful comedy writer, mm-hmm. so you've been around show business for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, was, was that not a temptation? Obviously, you have the skills to be a television script writer, should you choose to do that. And yet you chose to write this novel.
2: Yeah, no, it's never been a temptation. I love fiction. I love reading. The dream was to write a novel.
3: And a great dream it is. The novel is the queen of the sciences. It's the most sophisticated form of human understanding ever developed. So I agree. Yeah.
0: (laughs) This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. It's 90.7 KPFK FM, the LARB radio hour. We're talking to Cynthia DePri Sweeney about her new novel, The Nest.
3: Had a friend uh, for a long time, and he had very wealthy parents, and he was living his life in expectation of their demise. Mm-hmm. They were very old,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, kind of paper-skinned people. Right, and he was borrowing money from friends. Uh, he was, and so as I read, as I read this book, I kept thinking. What would have happened if it turned out that yeah. that fortune was actually not there? Right. Um, and that
2: does happen to people. Of course. A right? lot. Yeah. yeah.
3: They bank their entire life on um, right. this eventuality. I remember at one point, I'm a little kid and I'm looking at the house that I live in with my parents and I'm thinking they're going to die. I think what I'll do is I'll cut a hole in the ceiling here. I mean, I really had this, like, I, <laughs> idea. I'm, I'm, I'm 11, right? Right. And, uh, and, and I'm already planning. You're renovating the house. I'm yeah. renovating the house. And, of course... <laughs> You know, yeah. uh, what you don't... What <laughs> this you interview don't, just got way deeper than yeah, we were really. expecting. Yeah. But, and you think it's funny because you don't think when you're young and you're, you have those kind of expectations, right. you don't realize that they're not going to happen until you're in your 60s. <laughs> right. right,
2: if you're lucky. If you're
3: lucky, right. So if they happen at all. Um, so it's a long, long time it's to a, wait.
2: Yeah, it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. And it's also strange to... Uh, be an adult and to have your own children and to have this financial relationship with your parents. I think it makes the relationship a lot more complicated.
3: Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, uh, in a skeptical sense, I, I almost think that's part of the reason why this generation is now so close with their parents. Whereas we grew up in a kind of the generation gap. We just wasn't expected that you would be that close with your parents. But now, financially, everybody kind of needs each other more. Maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe it makes families closer. But maybe in terms of psychological development.
2: I think it's hard to have your own life and to, you know, step away from your, your inherited history, which is always a part of you, but can be a burden or a gift is probably some combination of both. And at some point, you sort of have to create your own narrative and decide what you're taking with you from, you know, the one you got when you were born and what you're leaving behind. And money complicates that.
3: Yeah. You have to decide whether you want to be Goneril and Reagan or Cordelia. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I want to be Goneril. (laughs) (laughs) No, but this chap that Tom was talking about, about this guy we knew who was going to really inherit a very big sum of money, we actually kind of fell out of touch with him because— I remember right before his 50th birthday, he was having a kind of like a breakdown, like we all have right before our 50th birthdays. And I remember talking to him about what he should do. And I said, you know what? You should get a job because he really oh. never had a job. And I yeah. thought that it would be really yeah. good for him just to feel yeah. like that. And he said, I can't get a job. And he meant it. Like in his mind, wow. that was an impossibility. And what happened to him? He inherited the money. He inherited the money. And wow. now, you know, we we're not in touch with him anymore. Right? Yeah. But that kind of psychological... I mean, this perfectly yeah. capable person. Yes. I cannot work. Yes. I can't do it. What a sad
2: thing to believe about yourself.
0: It's yeah. the aristocracy
3: in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that there's something about the reception of the book that has to do with this moment in our history, right? I mean, the, the fact that Trump is running for president and mm-hmm. this is on the top of the bestseller mm-hmm. list for all these weeks, they're related phenomena, right? Uh,
2: yeah, I, I would imagine so. I mean, people... It's funny because... I never described the book as being about money. To me, I was writing a book about siblings in peril and money was the fictional device I used to put pressure on them. Mm. But of course, as I said this in my interview with Ramona, it is of course about money and money does matter. And all anyone wants to talk to me about is their family money issues, whether it was a break over a crappy dining room table that everyone wanted or Hundreds of thousands of dollars. It is very fraught in all kinds of ways. And
0: very universal.
2: Yeah.
1: Do you have siblings? I do. I have three siblings. Oh, the, what
0: a coincidence.
2: Yeah,
1: I'm uh, the oldest of four. And so, uh, how do you guys handle joint? Is there an inheritance? Involved?
2: No, there is not. There is the opposite <laughs> of an inheritance, <laughs> yeah. um, uh-huh. quite literally. So there is nothing to handle. I mean, um, and my mom and dad have always told us, we are leaving you no money. There will be nothing left. And take out the photo albums of all of our family vacations. That's your inheritance. And, you know, they have some nice stuff in their house. And we've always had very frank conversations about who wants what and who's interested in what. And it's pretty easy. And Hmm. they're both alive and healthy and god bless them yes
1: but the funny thing about your book is that the father really does think ahead and tries to create a situation where this won't be so difficult for them because he says when the youngest is 40 you all get your inheritance so therefore you'll all be established right right but it kind of backfires yeah it does backfire in the most delightful way (laughs)
0: You've sold the film rights. I have. And you're adapting it? I am. At what stage of the process are you at?
2: We are at the stage where lawyers are sending contracts back and forth to one another. So So I'm not even in it yet. Have you
0: anticipated uh, that particular?
2: I have not. So it should be interesting. My friend Jill Soloway is producing. How
3: fantastic.
1: She has promised to... Help me. <laughs> so, was writing the movie a, a absolute necessity for you? Like
2: you, you know what? Pay? It was a necessity for her. It was a condition of her wanting to produce, and it's part of her strong belief that when you separate the material from the creator, it it loses strength. Oh, that's yeah. so true. Yeah,
0: yeah. So you know,
2: she persuaded me. I was, I was, I said no at first, but.
3: Laurie and I worked briefly with Curtis Hansen on an mm-hmm. ad- adaptation of an Edith Wharton novel actually Oh really uh, the custom of the country Oh
2: wow yeah
3: and uh, one of the things that Curtis said to us right away was when you're doing an adaptation the first thing you have to decide is what part of the novel are you going to adapt because you can't do an right, entire of novel course. right So have you thought about how that's going to work
2: No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> neither, neither did yeah. we <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but ours didn't. these are so. such painful questions I know but,
3: but it's fun we love writing, no I think
2: you know and I, I was persuaded because my meeting with Jill and her, her producing partner and the people from Amazon Feature Films was so great and I do know from having written all different kinds of things that learning another skill will only help every other writing I'm doing and so I think it will be fun and interesting and a cool thing yeah, to it's got, it's, to yeah,
0: it's yeah. like going back to the woodshed for yeah. structure. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Also, you have the characters, and it's only 120 pages.
2: I said to Jill, am I insane by thinking this isn't going to take me that long? And she said, no, a screenplay takes a long time when you don't know what the story is. And she mm-hmm. did say to me, that's, uh-huh. what, that's right. what we're going to have to figure out, like what's in the movie. And once we'll figure that out, and, and, it, and it won't take that long, yeah.
1: but we'll see. It's probably too early in the process, but uh, have you thought about casting the movie? Are you casting in your mind? I'm
2: not. You know, I get asked that question all the time, and I just, I can't, I can't assign actors to these people. I don't know. I have some mm. failure of imagination there, or maybe it's just that they're too fixed in my mind as who they are in my mind.
0: Right. Now, in the middle of all the amazing <laughs> things happening with this book, have you thought at all about another one? are you just thinking about yeah, the Yeah, no, play?
2: I started working on a new idea at the end of last year, and I'm not sure it's too early to know if it's going to stick or even exactly what it is. And I've been pulled a little off course in the past few months. But I'm hoping to start working on that.
1: You lived in New York for 27 Mm -hmm. years and you moved here in 2008. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in that transition. I I lived in New York for 17 years. I went to school in New York and then moved out here after 17 years. Mm -hmm. And it took me about two years to feel like... I was at home here. How are you dealing with the transition and are you uh, psychologically becoming an Angelino or have you become? I think so.
2: I really love it out here. I think the hardest thing for me, probably the hardest thing for most people, is that the struggle is like the opposite of what it is in New York. You're always fighting for space and time alone and sort of you know, a physical barrier around you because you're just surrounded by other people. And in Los Angeles, I just feel like I'm always fighting solitude. So that has been, you know, more solitude, more space has been both a great thing and a hard thing.
3: Well, come over for dinner. Yeah. Okay, I yeah. will.
2: <laughs> I get really hermity and I sometimes I have to force myself to leave the house.
0: Mm, also a writerly occupational hazard yes right?
2: yeah
0: all right the book is the nest congratulations on all of its success
2: thank you for having me here
0: cynthia depre sweeney thanks for being on the show pleasure talking to you thanks our favorite screenwriter slash dickens scholar john romano has stopped back to the larb Radio International World Headquarters to talk about a book. John, what book do you want to hip us to today? I just want everyone to go
4: out and read George Eliot's
0: novel, Daniel Deronda. I love that book. It's one of my favorite books. Why do you think people should read that book?
4: Well, you get two for the price of one. It contains this absolutely marvelous, straight-up Victorian high society romance featuring George Eliot's most interesting woman, Gwendolyn Harleth. And you read that for for the pure Downton Abbey of it, and at the same time, simultaneously interleaved, she begins to tell a story through Daniel Deronda's parentage of the Jews of London in the period before the Zionist movement had really begun, where consciousness of a of a uh, promised land uh, mythology and and is rising among and these wonderful Jewish characters and the portrait of their life and their tradition and their intellectual strength and things stands in such contrast to the Downton Abbey of the other half of the novel. It's a marvelous combination. They come together because George Eliot's a great novelist. And the portrait of Jewish life, I've heard it compared, this isn't me, but I've heard it compared to Rembrandt's uh, paintings of the Jews of Amsterdam. There's a kind of morose, unhappy, terribly intelligent, sympathetic, high-character portrait of Jewish life in London in the 70s. You're not going to find that anywhere else. It's completely gripping. And of course, the Movement of the book is toward shall we go start the promised land in the Middle
0: East. What got George out Eli- of a Victorian
4: novel? What an amazing thing!
0: What Can got go? George Eliot interested in writing about Jews?
4: Well, you know she didn't write novels, so she was in her late thirties until then. She wrote about theology and and philosophy. Her her uh, all of her interests were in religious and religious traditions and things. She only became a novelist later in life, and her gifts are you know Middlemarch. If you haven't read Daniel De Ronda please start with Middlemarch, maybe, please, maybe. But I think that she was interested always in religious tradition and in peoples and in uh, cultural and religious identity. There's a part of her that was always largely intellectual and sociological. But what a storyteller. Because, and can I, you know, can
1: I say something, yeah. even though we're, this is, we're supposed to be talking to John about this? No, I think that George Eliot does a really brilliant thing with Daniel Doranda, which is that she, and this is a spoiler alert, but your hero starts out believing that he is a gentleman and a Christian, and he learns that he is Jewish. So you start out identifying with him, and then his journey into Jewishness, you take with him. And that was so brilliant of her, because who's, no one's going to identify with a Jew in a novel in 1871, right?
3: Yeah. Well, that's what her her lover said, right? George Henry Lewis, he said, I think the Jewish element will satisfy no one. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah.
4: Well, it sounds about me me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's quite a unique Victorian novel,
3: but it was very controversial when it came out, right? For for this very reason,
4: I can well believe that. I don't know that particular story. All I know is that now, when you, uh, I think, when uh, questions of the the Jewish identity of Israel are those are hot button topics, it's really interesting to get an 1870s uh, liberal perspective on, on on that and issues of. Of, uh, of War and Peace begin right there in the meantime it's the most entertaining uh, story and she's a great uh, Christian heroine Gwendolyn
0: John now that you've adapted American Pastoral I think you need to be the screenwriter who brings Daniel Deronda to the movies
4: there's a decent BBC version starring Romulo Garay I mean it's a hard one though but uh, thanks for the compliment I'm calling your agent <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: thanks for coming back to the studio oh, nice to be here Thanks to our crack production assistant, Ernesto Aureliano. Thanks to Alan Minsky and associate producer, Jim Lane. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter should you be moved to do so. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening.